In part two of my interview with Maurice Thomas, we talked about the role scientists can play in disseminating sound scientific information. We also went into the concept and process behind the Useful Science website and podcast and discussed how being director of this science popularization platform fits in Maurice's academic career. Well, I actually uh, participated in student newspapers. Um, I was a design editor, so I wasn't a, you know, a typical editor like you might think of, but I was doing the, the graphic design and the layout. Uh, but I got to see the process and how it worked. Um, and after that, I also participated in some undergraduate science journals. Uh, so those are more established groups that have been around for, for a longer time, uh, but those can give you the same kind of skills and maybe even connections uh, to a SciComm path eventually. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. So welcome to part two of uh, my interview with Maurice Thomas. And we were talking about uh, being in, in a postdoc. But one thing, Maurice, I'd like to ask you is, what about finding a postdoc? A lot of the listeners out there are now in, the, in their last year, last two years of PhD, and may be asking themselves, how do I do this? What's, you know, what are the steps? What, what should I do? What should I prepare? How should I prepare? Um, can you talk a little bit uh, about how you went about, uh, you already mentioned that you had crossed paths with, with your future supervisors, but what about the process, uh, the, the, the regular process of finding a postdoc and uh, apply, uh, yeah, applying for postdocs? How does that, how does that happen and how did it go for you? My situation was definitely, I think, not the typical, uh, person's situation when looking for a postdoc, uh, I had that connection. And so in the end, it was the only uh, position I ended up applying for. Uh, but I think the average um, applicant would maybe choose something more like five or six possible positions that they're interested in. And I think most of this research happens through, um, through email. So looking at uh, postdoc positions that are posted either online or through uh, institutional newsletters, For example, I think the IPN, so that's the neuroscience program at McGill, I think they post postdoc opportunities at the bottom of their newsletter every week. Um, I think uh, you would start with that and you would look for something that's, first of all, a, a research topic that you are, that you want to be in. So this is about um, developing your skills and thinking about if, if you do want to start a lab, what skills do you kind of want to bring to that lab? What do you feel like you're missing and what do you want to learn? And so you really want to find an opportunity where maybe there's a balance of, of um, things for you to learn, but also uh, relevant enough to your previous research that you can also offer something to the lab there. Um, and then I think you would reach out by email, either replying to those postings, or maybe you could directly contact professors uh, where you might be interested in working. And then the postdoc uh, interview process almost always includes a job talk. So for me, I did my job talk in person. So that means you, you would visit the institute and you would give about a 45-minute or hour-long presentation about your work, and then 
Um, you spend the day you know, getting to know the lab, meeting um, the professor, meeting other labs in the area. And uh, so I think that is a pretty common experience. So you could expect if you're going to contact five or six professors, you might end up giving five or six job talks. And now I know uh, um, job talks are happening through Zoom. And so that might be more mm -hmm. of the norm for the next mm -hmm. year. Um, but uh, I think that would be something you could definitely expect. Mm -hmm. Did you prepare for your job talk? Did you give it to uh, your partner or colleagues before you, you went on and, and, uh, and did the actual one? Definitely. And I had a, a milestone coming up for my PhD around the same time. I had a thesis presentation to give. It wasn't the defense, but it was before that. And so I managed to time them pretty close together and they were almost the same talk. And so having that original run through with my thesis committee was very helpful in preparing for the talk. Excellent. I think this this is uh, this may be very uh, very important advice for people who are are wondering what happens, what should I do? So prepare prepare this talk. I think this must be a, a very important point. Rehearse it, train train, and then uh, it's just a question of yeah, finding the, the the labs that interest you and and seeing if you're a good match for the lab for the PI etc. For sure, Maurice, I'd really like now in part two to focus on. Uh, science communication on on what you've been doing in science communication and uh, we talked about it in part one it's called usefulscience.org and it's a website where science is uh, let's say digested and presented in simpler terms to the general audience my question is how was uh, useful science born how was the the origin story let's say Useful Science started at McGill, actually. So it was um, the summer of 2013, and the founder of Useful Science is Jan Autosar. So he was my friend at the time. We've known each other since first year at McGill in undergrad. And um, he basically reached out to a group of his friends who were all either going into research, going into grad school, or who had already maybe started doing summer research projects and um, proposed this premise to us. And the premise was simple. Uh, it was that we would start writing these one-sentence summaries of scientific articles. And um, we, you know, I jumped on immediately. I said, yeah, I think this is a great idea. Uh, it's simple. It was a good time to be starting this because if you think back then in 2013, like uh, the character limit, for example, on Twitter was still 140 characters. Um, life hacks were trending. That was like becoming a thing. And so there was this kind of, trend of shortening and making things quick and easy to understand. Uh, and so that contributed to the idea. Then um, this, our, this group of original contributors moved to grad school, moved to different places, and basically through word of mouth, it grew uh, until we reached about 60 contributors within a year. And the website itself launched in 2014. So now we've been around for six years. Wow. Wow, that, that's uh, that's amazing, and uh, and now you have the podcast, uh, which is fairly recent. I fairly recently learned about it. Uh, when was the when was the podcast born? I think, if I remember correctly, I think it was about two years after the website started. Uh, so now it's also been around for a bit, but we have thirty three episodes. Uh, and so this this is now let's say a platform where contributors, like like you were saying, around the world, wherever they are. Are uh, are sending in their their work to be published. Uh, how 
Did you go about widening this network uh, and, and making, making it into what it is today? Was it simply to, through word of mouth? How did you go about getting more, more contributors and, and promoting, let's say, the, the website? Um, at the beginning, word of mouth was, was definitely a major part of it. Uh, that's what led us to gain more contributors. Uh, but we also had um, a pretty big email campaign where we emailed uh, science reporters uh, to basically let them know that the website had launched. And we emailed a lot of people, most of the, I think over 400 emails, and most of them didn't get a reply. Uh, but the replies that we did get mattered because one of the replies was actually from Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. And so we have this tweet. If you go on our website, we still have the tweet up. The tweet is from like 2014. Uh, but it's basically him uh, uh, sharing our website. And that kind of uh, attention is what definitely gave the website momentum and, and led more contributors to reach out to us, um, some that hadn't, that we didn't know necessarily personally, but uh, who just started reaching out. Now I've been the director since 2018. And so now the job has fallen more on me to continue recruiting new contributors And now we tend to go more with an open call for contributor style on Twitter or on um, different volunteer websites. And that's how uh, with this, um, how I was saying recently, we've had a major increase in the number of applications. And that's been now through these volunteer websites, which have um, actually been pretty useful for us to find volunteers. Mm, that's excellent. And um, I'm curious, do you get feedback from The, the public, from the general public uh, who reads the articles, listens to the episodes, um, how, how, are, how are they you know, digesting this information? Do they write back uh, saying thank you? Um, how does, is there any interaction? Do you get any feedback from the public? We occasionally do. Um, it's, when we do get it, we've, we've received positive feedback. One time I remember asking, um, I sent out a tweet and I said, Uh, have you made any changes in your life because of a summary that you've read and let us know? And then someone replied and told me that they had. Um, they had read a summary uh, where we mentioned that uh, using a meditation app at work uh, helped reduce stress from employees. And we put a link to the app. It was, I think it was Headspace. This is not an ad for them, <laughs> but it just happened to be the one in the study. And uh, that person said that they actually started using that app and that it had helped them. Um, So we love hearing things like that, but mostly it is, uh, it is difficult to, um, it is a bit of a one way communication stream and the feedback you get is only a percentage of maybe the people that are actually reading. And so sometimes that is difficult to know what the uh, reaction is to the, to the content that you're putting out. Um, so that is a limitation of, um, uh, having, I guess a, platform where there isn't a huge um, emphasis on that kind of two-way communication. Uh, same thing with the podcast where you have a lot of listeners and maybe you'll get some emails back from people asking questions. Uh, I don't know how uh, many emails you get for your podcast, um, but for sure it's a small percentage of everyone who's listening. So it would be nice to um, talk to even more of them i've gotten some comments on some episodes really a few uh, you could count them by the fingers of a hand uh, but uh, some twitter uh, messages some direct messages but i i'm still fairly new and uh, and so it's been really uh, one or two uh, one or two uh, but those one or two i felt really good <laughs> yeah exactly and that does remind me that a lot of a, a Again, a percentage of the percentage is uh, people 
offering to contribute their own time. And so that tells me that when they see the project, it's something that they do like and that they feel like it's something that they'd want to contribute to. That's that's very cool. And I, I really love projects where uh, the idea is to give and 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 this is definitely one so people are giving their time to your project and you're giving information to the the public that they might not might not understand if if it was just given to them in their in its raw format so i really really love that uh you're talking about people reaching out to contribute and definitely in at the end of of this second part we are going to tell people how to reach you and to uh to uh um offer their their contribution uh but This makes me think of uh, science communication as a whole and of all the students, like when we were at McGill at this science communication event, all those uh, graduate researchers that were there were interested in science communication. Um, and this was really striking to me. I was really happy to see all the, the enthusiasm and all the, 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 the energy that was in the room. But for people out there who have this interest and uh, who want to try their hand at... I don't know, writing, um, maybe, I know, it could be blogging, it could be uh, editing, any, anything related to science communication. Do you have any ideas that you could share with them on how to try their hand and do it uh, at the same time as they're, let's say, finishing their PhD or doing their postdoc? Yeah, and I think McGill is actually a good example of this. Um, when I started my PhD, I didn't see any anything about science communication. Um, I don't remember seeing it in, for example, email newsletters about conferences or projects that are being offered by either uh, the university or by other students. Um, uh, but then towards the end, it really picked up. And I feel like it is, unfortunately, in some ways, the students who have, who have um, picked up the slack and who have created these opportunities for other students For example, a workshop that I attended in my last year of my PhD at McGill was run entirely by other graduate students, um, and, but that was a uh, science communication workshop. It was called Spell Your Science. And so now I do see those opportunities advertised much more uh, within newsletters, so I would suggest to anyone looking to get into them uh, to kind of scan those newsletters that you get um, from your program, and, uh, and those opportunities pop up a lot more now. Uh, there's also, and I think more of them are also university sponsored. So the one that we were, that we met at now was sponsored by, um, uh, HBHL, mm -hmm. healthy brains, uh, healthy life, McGill, yeah. exactly. Um, so I think universities are finally catching on to the message that this is an alternative, uh, type of learning and professional development that students want to participate in. Uh, for anyone who doesn't have access to that, those kinds of resources, Science Twitter is really uh, an amazing way to uh, hear about opportunities. Um, there's a website also called SciCom Board uh, that posts opportunities available remotely, kind of like useful science. They can be participated in um, online or in person. And so um, I would say to look out for those types of uh, types of things. I just want to take a moment before going on with the interview to let you know that you can help me end the show by leaving a star rating and a comment on your podcasting app. If you want to go a step further, go to patreon.com slash PhD now and become a supporter. For the equivalent of a coffee per month, you'll be helping me immensely with the recurring costs of hosting and producing the show. Again, 
Thank you for being a true fan. Great. Uh, yeah, and do do look for for resources in your in your university. I do think I just uh, had a conversation uh, uh, some some time ago. It was uh, not the, uh, this week's episode. It was last week's episode. Someone who's in Paris, and yeah, universities are picking up that PhDs need to learn other skills, need to learn what's the reality in industry. And they're starting to offer these these courses, these workshops, these seminars. And I think it's it's really great to see that happen. And uh, the, the thing is, students need to still look for what's happening in their university. Uh, it, it, it's not, it's probably not going to pop into their inbox uh, you know, directly. Uh, so do look around, ask around and, um, and for sure, your university is going to have something that that might interest you, or it could be uh, editing in a, in a, in a university magazine, or in a uh, you you were talking about student associations. It can it can there can be uh, you know writing and something for a newsletter of a student association. There's many ways that people can can try their hand at at writing and at communicating in different um, in different capacities. That's right. And and that's a good point. Sorry to interrupt. Um, there are more traditional, uh, I guess you could call traditional ways to, to gain experience in writing um, that would help you in science communication. So, for example, I actually uh, participated in student newspapers. Um, I was a design okay. editor, so I wasn't a... You know, a typical editor like you might think of, but I was doing the, the graphic design and the layout. Uh, but I got to see the process and how it worked. Um, and after that, I also participated in some undergraduate uh, science journals. Uh, so those are more um, established uh, kind of groups that have been around for, for a longer time. Uh, but those can give you the same kind of skills and maybe even connections uh, to, uh, to a SciComm path eventually. Excellent. Uh, I agree t- totally, and and uh, and th- like you say, they're more traditional, but they're they're very well structured, and it's it should be fairly easy to find your way there. Uh, now, you know, uh, looking at your path, you're you're now doing a postdoc. You you have you. I imagine you imagine yourself professionally. You know, in in four or five six years, uh, doing, you know, something related to to research. But uh, the question I'd like to ask is you have been developing and cultivating all this science communication side of your activities and then you have learned for sure you have gained skills you have uh, accrued some some networking but my question to you is if you project yourself five years from now how do you think or even if you look five years back and and think of today how do you think as a researcher uh, doing these things has enriched you, and how do you think uh, all the, all these uh, these skills, this time time you have spent on this project, how they will resonate, uh, what echoes they will have in the researcher you'll be uh, in the future? That's a beautiful question. Um, exactly. Thinking back five years ago, um, I think that. When you start doing research, you kind of do it, um, maybe, maybe you will choose a project where you feel like you can have some kind of um, very obvious benefit on humanity, especially if you're working with human um, like participants um, or, for example, cancer research or something where you can um, really see, hopefully, a short-term benefit to your research. Um, but for, in my field, uh, the results of my studies will probably not have major impact for 
for years, perhaps, or we we don't know. It's it's basic science research, and so um, you're kind of taking a gamble on whether or not that that all that time and energy that you're putting on it is really going to end up having the impact that you hope it will. And I guess by having these other opportunities or these other ways to interact with science and to kind of engage with it and also discuss it with others and putting yourself more in the idea of how does science um, affect the public and how does the public interact with it um, lets you see other sides, I guess, of the, of the bigger picture. And the skills that you learned as a researcher, even if you're doing basic research, the skills you learn include um, analysis of texts of scientific articles, knowing how to read the article and parse it, knowing how to look into the statistics. Um, and those skills uh, apply to any field. So our, I always tell our contributors, um, it, it, it doesn't matter that you're not an expert in the paper that you're reading. You are an expert in um, in reading papers. And you'll be able to apply that knowledge to, um, you know, to pull out the, the bottom line from the papers. And that's what we do um, all the time. And so I think that uh, that has kind of translated and has stayed with me um, throughout the process. Mm -hmm. And uh, one one feeling that I get um, is that, and you kind of alluded to it, but uh, seeing it from another side, is that people who are in SciComm enjoy or take take pleasure or take satisfaction in giving back something directly to the community around them, uh, to the to people uh, on the street and if you're um, doing research and thinking thinking maybe more in the past we're in the 21st century and being a researcher today is, is something that's changing I'd, I'd say and a lot has to do with communication in my opinion but i think uh, one thing that may be very enriching for for someone like you is the fact that yes you're doing your research it may have impact on on people later on but this thing that you're doing is is uh, ha having impact on people right away today when they read the article when they read the article, the article. so I, I feel that there's a social responsibility aspect there and and also uh, a feeling of uh, community uh, with with the people around you who are not researchers uh, would you say there's something like that in it for you too Absolutely. And that's the hope. And you can't see me right now, but I was nodding the whole time you were saying that. <laughs> Excellent. So I was just talking about the 21st century researcher. And it's funny because this makes me think of things that are completely different, like the, the citizen scientist, which is, which is a very interesting movement to, to me. Uh, but I, I don't think we have time to, to go into that. Um, but uh, now for people who are now in their PhD, in their postdoc, Uh, I think it's a great time, and now they're maybe at home, you know, in confinement, to reflect on what type of scientist am I going to be, and uh, and uh, how am I going to be, uh, you know, the best person, just the best person in in today's society as a scientist, and maybe eventually as a communicator of science. And uh, I, I think uh, what we've been talking about. Uh, useful science and and uh, these few minutes that that we just talked uh, to me at least make me im imagine the 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 role of the scientist m more and more as someone that's hand in hand with with people uh, uh, on the streets versus that uh, very uh, old idea of uh, you know ivory tower blah 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 which which I think is passe today or at least I hope it is. <laughs> 
Um, Maurice, uh, I, I think now is the time maybe to ask you the, 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 the kind of uh, final question, which is thinking about this of all you know you've you've gone through so far in terms in terms of uh you know going through your phd now starting a postdoc in a new country new city uh having your projects uh what two or three pieces of advice would you have for people who are finishing or just starting their postdoc too and who want to be a kind kind of a, a new kind of uh researcher a new kind of scientist that is more in tune with with today uh, and, and uh, w with this new tendency of of being more in touch with with the with the street, let's say, <laughs> with Main Street. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I do think uh, reflecting on when we started the website, for example, uh, it's just the first thing that came to mind. It does feel like now the stakes feel higher in a way. Um, you know, there've been. Um, reminders of how important the work of scientists is to to the whole world. So global warming, um, the, the, this pandemic, uh, and it almost feels like this has highlighted, at least for me, the, the responsibility that you have as a scientist to to try to go that um, extra effort to, as you said, uh, be able to communicate with with almost anyone on on the street or someone that you meet, um, and so. Uh, not everyone has to do it. Not every scientist has to be the best communicator to the public, but if at least a fraction of us um, try to try to do so and try to develop those skills, then it could make a difference and, and help us, you know, in those conversations that we happen to have um, with our family or with our friends or even you know, on the bus with someone that you're speaking to. Um, and so one way to do that is by trying to develop these skills, um, uh, the skills of science communication, um, maybe through attending an online workshop or an in-person workshop or reading a bit about it or practicing by becoming a volunteer for one of these organizations. Um, I think all of it could uh, in some make, make a big difference on how people perceive scientists um, both in their community and the ones that they you know, see on TV when they have to listen to them in the media. Mm -hmm. Well, you were talking about McGill uh, a few minutes ago and there's different events that you can take part in and volunteer during the year, like Brain Awareness Week, uh, Brain Reach, things like that. If you have things like that around you, do do participate to take part in it. You'll meet like-minded people. You'll you'll get in touch with students. Often it's going to be elementary school students. That's a total different adventure, you know, explaining science to them. So I agree with you uh, 100%. Maurice, uh, now, just uh, as we're closing the episode... We mentioned a bunch of times that people can contribute to UsefulScience.org. Uh, can you share uh, with the, the audience how they can reach out and how they can offer to contribute to, uh, to uh, you know, in their specific domain of research and of expertise? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so again, you can find out more about us at our website. That's UsefulScience.org. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at UsefulSci. Uh, you can email us hello at usefulscience.org. And we really uh, are looking for contributors with any level of experience. As long as you have a graduate, um, as long as you've started graduate school, we kind of expect that you'll already know how to parse a scientific paper. Um, but then 
regardless of any other experience in science communication, um, our doors are open and we want to be a place where um, you feel like you can start that journey and kind of see if this is something that you're interested in. And so, yeah, please feel free to reach out. And uh, you can also uh, reach me directly on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Maryse, M-A-R-Y-S-E, E Thomas. Excellent. Maryse, uh, I will put I'll put those links in the show notes uh, so people can uh, can go and uh, click directly. Thank you so much for having me in on Papa PhD. Um, I wish you all the best for your your postdoc, but also for for your science communication projects. And uh, you know, I, I hope people will uh, listen to the episode and be inspired, uh, get some ideas, and or maybe just some encouragement to start. I don't know their blog or maybe maybe even their podcast. Who knows? <laughs> I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me again. Thank you. If you enjoyed the insights shared on the show each week and would like to dig deeper into some of the subjects covered, you can now join the Papa PhD Postgraduate Career Exploration Group on Facebook. There, you will find like-minded listeners, but also a few of the past guests who will be taking part in the conversation. So, to start a conversation, just go to facebook.com forward slash Papa PhD and ask to join. And if the show has helped you in any way and you'd like to contribute, join the Papa PhD Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Papa PhD and become a monthly supporter. You will be helping me continue to interview interesting guests and to bring you stories that will help you in your career journey. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.